Welcome to God Porter, a podcast produced by St. Paul's Theological Centre based at Holy Trinity, Brompton in London. Theologians Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams and the occasional guests join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology and just about anything else. Well, here we are again, and I think this is God Pod number 12. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you, Graham. Good morning, Jane. morning, Graham. And uh, we have Rod as well, Rod Green. And it's um, great to have you with us again, Rod. Thank you. Good morning to you. You're becoming a bit of a regular on this, aren't you? Well, two weeks so far. Two weeks so far. Uh, Rod, for those of you who maybe didn't listen to God Pod 11 or 10, whichever one it was, (laughs) he's a student at Wycliffe Hall. He's um, going to get ordained next year. That's right. And uh, he's sort of hanging around with us here at the St. Paul's Theological Centre for a few weeks. So it's great to have you here. Doing master's study at Oxford University, is that right? That's right, in applied theology. In applied theology. I used to teach him, which is why he's not uh, doing very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did I, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yes, yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes, it's so it's only Jane who hasn't polluted his mind <laughs> yet. And I'm so starting now. <laughs> that's why I'm here to learn. This is the downhill journey. Good. Well, today we have um, some, again, very good questions. Thank you to those of you who've uh, emailed in various things. And the first one we're going to have a go at today is um, from uh, Devon, Devon Lovelace. And uh, she writes this very interesting question. Can you please explain Acts chapter 16, verse 31, which says, and this is um, the bit where Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. And um, you remember what happens, the... Uh, Paul and Silas, this big earthquake happens, they are freed from prison, the jailer gets scared stiff, and uh, he goes to them and says, uh, what, what must I do to be saved? And then verse 31 says, they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so Devon asks, does this mean I don't need to bash my son and husband over the head with the Bible anymore? Um, so assuming, I, I presume the question is that if the text here says that um, you will be saved, you and your household, does that mean that if one person head of the household believes therefore everybody else in that household the family is also automatically saved or actually does that quite fit with our idea of individual salvation that we all individually have to believe in Christ um, to be saved so that's our question Hmm. who wants to start I remember being very taken aback when my husband was made a bishop and somewhere in the service it said that he had to promise to order his household <laughs> correctly. And the children and I looked at each other and thought, shall we cooperate with this or not? <laughs> <laughs> what was the answer? <laughs> well, what was the outcome? We cooperate totally, absolutely. Oh, of course. Um, in its cultural context, of course, it would have to be the head of a household, which would be a man, oh. for this to apply. So that's a great relief for those of us who are women. We don't have to take this kind of responsibility. <laughs> that may be a cop-out. Yeah, probably is, I think, yeah. But it, but there is something, not just cultural, but you know, well, it's reflected in our own culture that it is a highly individualistic culture, and it has problems with any sense of group belonging, any sense of um, one thing affecting uh, a group of people rather than an ind- individual that you opt in or you opt out of. Um, and uh, that, it seems to me that the Bible manages to keep the two together quite well. Both individual responsibility, uh, the whole uh, Ezekiel thing, you know, that the soul that sins shall die, not, nothing else, nobody else. There's an individual responsibility and a fairness and a justice there. But also that a recognition that uh, what one person does affects 
the situation for everybody else. It, you can't be a neat individual doing your own individual thing without being impacted upon um, or impacting upon others. Uh, yes, I suppose it's something which um, is kind of related to the question of, of baptism and infant baptism, I, I guess. Cause, and I remember this when, I, when our children were born. I, I actually grew up in a Baptist family, hmm. so I wasn't baptized as a, as a, as a child. And um, Although I grew up within a, within a Christian family, a very, very strong Christian family. Um, but when I, me- I remember when our children were born, I, I had this question of, well, you know, are they, are they Christians or not? Now, obviously, they were babies. They couldn't say anything. They, they couldn't ask them theological questions and get a, uh, a reasonable answer out of them. But, um, but there was this question, you know, do I treat them as Christians or, or, or not? And, and it struck me that from the very early time, I wanted to teach them to pray and to believe in Jesus as their savior and God as, as, as their father. And um, they believed that implicitly from the very earliest time, even more even with less doubts than I had about it. And um, so it seemed to me to make, to make sense in a, in a way for them to be included rather than, or included until they decided to opt yes. out, rather than them to be excluded until they decided to opt in. And that seemed to be just recognizing the fact of the matter that that we actually did treat them as Christians. They grew up as Christians. They they, they believed as Christians. Now, obviously, at some point, they would have to decide whether they were going to carry on in that faith or whether they were going to opt out. But that was going to be their decision later on in life, was do they opt out of it or do they opt into it? Because if you like, they're already edi- already opted into it by the fact that my wife and I were Christians and we wanted to bring them up as Christians. And so, so that kind of chimes in with this sense of corporate belonging you get in this verse, that that yes, when the head of a household, whether that's understood as in this in this context, the man, or perhaps we might see it more as a sort of joint thing between the, 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 the husband and the wife, um, I don't want to get into that question. Um, but however you see the head of the household, if the household is Christian, there's a sense in which those who are part of the household are included within that. I, I think that's right. And I think, uh, as, as you say, in a family, that's that's what you do. You treat them as if they're Christians. You, you pray with them. You do all the sorts of things that you, that you would do uh, as, as a Christian. And um, therefore, it's rather like being on um, your parents' passport, isn't it? You can travel on your parents' passport uh, until a certain age, but well, you can't now, but you used to be able to. Um, and uh, it's rather the same here, I think. You know, the household is included in the passport. Um, that doesn't mean that they have no individual choice or responsibility. They can opt out, as you say. But um, I think the great thing is, is um, obviously, it's a cause of great heartache for lots and lots of Christian families where um, children don't grow up believing as their parents do or where one partner doesn't believe. And I think I always find it very comforting to remember that as far as we can see, Jesus' own family didn't come to believe mm. Mm. until after the crucifixion. So I think one shouldn't feel enormous guilt if you're sure. not able to, yeah. mm. to um, persuade all your family to share your faith. Yep. Um, one of the things I like about this particular story that Devon is quoting is, um, is that actually his, the jailer's household sounded really very happy. They, it says that they rejoiced that that he had become a believer in God. So they're perfectly mm. clear that they're not sure about it yet, but they see some change in mm. the head of the household that makes them happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that is actually rather a good picture of how it might begin to affect mm. the people that you live with if it's actually changing your own life. Mm. Um, so, I mean, how far is there a cultural question here, though? Because I guess you could... One line of, uh, of, of answering this question might be to say, OK, that was a very corporate culture, one where, you know... Basically, if the head of the household changed his religion, you had to go along with it. You didn't have any say in the matter. Whereas now, we are in a more individualistic um, culture, for good or bad. Um, people do make their own choices. 
And therefore, this kind of thing doesn't apply as much today because of the cultural context, um, because of our more uh, our greater kind of awareness of individualistic or individual identity and, um, and difference. So I, I, maybe that works. I remember. I wonder if it just works with families as well. That's the other question I had. Or could you talk about peer groups? So I remember Phil Wall, the evangelist, talking about peer evangelism, whereas instead of making appeals for individuals to stand, he made appeals for groups of friends to stand all together. So the leader makes the choice and everyone else follows. And they all followed. Yeah. It was very successful. Right. Yeah. I guess that, I mean, that, that doesn't preclude the fact that somebody in the peer group might say, hang on a minute, I, I'm not going to go along with this, no. and they can opt out of that. So it's not an automatic thing, mm. but it is recognising our sort of corporate nature, and, and that which is stronger in some cultures yes. than others. It's, it it recognises that all, in all cultures there are ties of belonging mm. that are very powerful. Mm. Um, and while you know you, you don't always want to go along with peer, peer pressure mm. um, <clears throat> nevertheless it recognizes that there is such a thing mm. that there is that there is a, a community there now it's going to be different in the modern world than it was in, in there we don't have households including slaves and that kind of thing um, but there's a recognition and, and to a degree an affirmation of those structures of belonging mm. um, that formed all our different societies in different ways it seems to me yeah so I mean, getting to Devon's second question, I mean, she puts it in a sort of humorous way. She doesn't have to bash her son and husband over the head with the Bible anymore. But, um, but I guess that, I mean, there's a kind of serious question underneath that, isn't there? Which is what, you know, if you are a, a Christian within a family who, who are not Christians, especially perhaps if you are a parent, um, what does that say about your responsibility to those within your wider family? Um, I... I think the instinct behind her second question is, is absolutely right. That, that is, it does perhaps suggest a, a more or less anxiety-ridden approach mm-hmm. uh, to the situation in which people like that find themselves in. Um, and as Jane says, it is a painful uh, situation often and it has tensions. Um, and this perhaps says relax a little bit. <laughs> um, not that you stop praying for them or stop you know, using such natural opportunities as arise but um, the, the bashing bit is probably not a good <laughs> way of doing, going about things in any situation One of my favourite stories is the story about St Augustine's mother, Monica oh. who sounds a, a slightly annoying kind of woman actually she obviously did <laughs> nag him a great deal and <laughs> would have liked him to make a good marriage and that kind of thing but, um, but she obviously prayed for him very regularly she was the Christian oh. in, in the family her husband wasn't and Augustine didn't grow up as a Christian, although she prayed for him a lot. Um, and we are told um, after Augustine's conversion that the bishop said to his mother, I knew that the child of so many tears could never be lost. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've always found that as a mother a very, very heartening thing, that because you are bound to pour lots of your love and anxiety into your children and want them to share the thing that's most important to you. But you don't always see that straight away. You don't always see those results straight away, as you, as you often don't in any kind of evangelism. Mm-hmm. It would be just one part of, um, of what is going on in that person's life with God. Mm. I think I mean, the, the passage that always strikes me about evangelism within families is the, is the passage in 1 Peter 3 where um, it talks about wives and, wives and husbands. And um, where it says, you know, wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And I think the interesting thing I found about that is it's not actually about 
I don't think it's about sort of gender inferiority. It's not, it's not saying that women need to be, or wives need to be submissive to their husbands because they're inferior or anything like that. It's actually, it's actually about evangelism. It's about, you know, if you're a, uh, a pagan husband whose wife comes home as a Christian, you think, oh no, this is going to be real trouble because she's going to be just dis- different and, and disobedient and she's going to be real trouble to me and she's going to be a real pain in the neck. And uh, the advice is, well, actually, no, just, just, just be different from what he's expecting. Actually, be a better wife. Be, um, be more, um, uh, you know, cooperative and, and supportive with and, him and supportive yeah. and everything else. And the fascinating thing is, you know, you will win him over without a word, which I think is very, very interesting because we usually think evangelism has to be very wordy. Yeah. And I have to kind of persuade people and, you know, lots and lots of words to get it right. Um, and usually that's, that's right. We, need, we do need to use words in evangelism. But the idea that you can win someone over without a word is a fascinating one, and that's, that's especially true if you're living so closely alongside someone, like a wife and a husband, or, or a parent and a, and a child. So that you know the the, the emphasis is actually not upon bashing people over the head with the Bible, but it's actually upon the kind of Christian life that is lived at such close quarters that that, that it can be seen to be different and, and attractive. This is one of your themes, isn't it, Graham? Yeah. Is, 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 yeah. So how to live in such a way as to provoke questions so that actually it's not us going out and, and bashing people over the heads no. uh, it's people coming to us and saying what's different and why what and yes. yeah but that's yeah. much harder isn't it Graham? it is a lot the words harder. are the easy bit that's right. <laughs> the exactly. life that's the difficult particularly <laughs> <laughs> within families yeah. Yeah. absolutely yeah. that's why we resort to words so easily which is why it would be nice if if we all if when we went to church we were so clearly longing to go that everybody around us longed to come with us. Yeah. It? That's right. mm. Is that your experience, Jane, as you travel around various churches? It depends on the church. <laughs> but I do love travelling around churches in Africa where you There is that excitement. There is that excitement and people come for the day mm. and it's what you really want to do for your whole day is, is be together and, and mm. praise the Lord. And it's that is to do with the quality of fellowship isn't it it's to do with the quality of, of, of interaction that you have with the because you don't go to church to worship you go to Not worship primarily. god together, together. Yes. you can worship yeah. anywhere what you do yeah. in church is worship god together uh and if the together bit is, is enriching and good and, mm. and warm and encouraging and supportive then it's going to be a place you're yeah. drawn to it and want to go to and which is where rod's peer thing comes in again isn't yes it? If lots of your friends go, then that's where you want to be, isn't it? Mm. We're going to move on to another question, which comes from, um, this time from Fee, Fee Perry, who is um, the youth pastor at HTB, and uh, she asks again a very interesting question, which goes like this. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Does it mean we look like him? Do we go through the same processes as him, but at a greatly slower rate? Um, and how does that? How is the idea of being made in God's image helpful to someone who has a low self-image? So, um, what does it mean to be made in God's image? This theme at the beginning of the book of Genesis, where it tells us how we are made in God's image. Um, it's very interesting, isn't it, that it's a theme that becomes central in Christian theology. It's actually not so central in Jewish theology, as far as one can tell, and that's partly because. Um, we as Christians believe that the real image of God is Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we actually have a, a better basis on which to start talking about what it means to be the image of God. Mm-hmm. And I think what we mean is that 
um, in Jesus' case, he's the way in which we see what God is like. And therefore, that's what we are trying to do as images of God, is to help people see what God is like. Yeah, thank you. Very good. Good start. Uh, no, I agree. I agree with that. Actually. I'm sorry to disappoint our <laughs> listeners, um, but uh, I think it's a way of saying that um, we reflect in some way uh, all sorts of the characteristics of God. God is the Creator, so we are creative. That's part of who we are. It's how, part of who God wants us to be. Um, it's something not to be suppressed or or denied or unvalued. It's, it's a hugely significant part uh, of who we are. God is relationship, and we are not relationship in the same way. We're not trin- trinity uh, like that, but we are made for relationship, um, and that's who we are. And again, when we, rec- when we suppress that or go so much for accomplishment that we forget relationship, we suffer, uh, our humanity is, is stunted in some way, um, God is love we are made for love um, we reflect in some way who he is in, in those sorts of ways I don't think it's um, that we look like him is diff- I hope not because he's invisible <laughs> and, that, that, and I'm too, too vain to want to be no, he doesn't look like you Mike <laughs> I was trying to think what somebody who looked like all of the four of us around this table would actually look like you could probably do that with computer generation <laughs> couldn't right. you? Is, it, is it also about value as well all those things kind of feed into the value of humanity so i think if you look at the genesis stories in light of the other ancient near eastern stories the babylonian creation stories where humanity is created out of violence the struggle between the gods Mm. as created as a slave to those gods they're they're incidental they have no rights they have no dignity no value and actually when we're created in the image of god the creator himself then human beings inherently have something about them which is precious and wonderful and valuable. I think that's entirely right. And and the exciting thing is, we're each of us made in the image of God and unique. Mm. And therefore, each of us is an angle on God that nobody else has. Mm. And therefore, we need each other if we're to ex- have our view of God expanded. Um, it's, I, the image I always use is, is that of a, a, a life model in a, in a drawing class. Um, you have the model in the middle and a whole lot of artists around the side, in a kind of circle around the model and they all draw the model um, and if they're good artists they will all look like uh, the model but they will all be from a slightly different angle and we are self-portraits of God from a different angle and therefore if you want to get a better richer, deeper, larger picture of who God is you need your fellow human beings to reflect uh, a unique angle on God and that does make them incredibly important and valuable and um, and is therefore worth saying to the, to the people with low self-image that Fee is asking us about that actually they are required for us mm. to, to yeah. see God. We need them, what they contribute to our vision of God yes. and our vision of our yes. lives together. Well, uh, sorry, I, on the value thing, I mean, just to say, uh, I think it's hugely important to say that, that because we are made in the image of God, our value is given. You don't have to earn it. Because mm. uh, most of us think, and in fact, in many ways, experience people demanding this of us, that you earn your value. Uh, you know, in, a, in a company or something, people, the company will want to know how much money you've brought into the company. That's how you are valued. You, it's conditional upon performance. Um, people feel that I will be valuable if 
uh, I'm loved, if I'm popular, if I'm successful, if I'm whatever. And the doctrine of the image of God says, no, you just are. It's a given. That is the fact. And one of the tasks of life is actually just to rest in that fact and not to try and earn it in umpteen different ways, which is an anxiety-ridden thing, because will I manage it, will I accomplish it, even if I do, will I be able to maintain it, might I lose it? No, it's a given, which is why in um, after the flood, what human beings are told they mustn't kill, because we're made in the image of God. There's a value that we have to respect. And, and something that comes out of that is um, the, the, the Greek word for, for image is... It's an icon, but you know, obviously we think of icons as being sort of sacred portraits, which certainly in Eastern Christianity are you know hugely venerated. You know, you, you treat an icon with with, with great um, great respect and and, um, and the sense of wonder. You know, you kiss it, you reverence it. Now, whether that, again it's a good thing to do or not is another question. But but the idea is that you know that, that an image of an icon of Christ or an icon of the apostles or an icon of the Trinity or something like that is something you you, you reverence. And um, I guess, you know, given what we've been thinking of, if, if we are images of God, each person that I meet today is an image of God, is an icon of God, then that has quite a lot to say about how I am meant to treat them. I'm actually to treat each person I meet today as an icon of God, just as much as any Russian or Greek Christian would, would treat these sort of very sacred paintings. And in a, in a real sense, you know, the real icon of God is... is, is the people I encounter every day and therefore that means a big difference in the way that I treat you know this is not just someone who gets in my way or someone who's a sort of vehicle for my career or or, or, um, gratification gratification or whatever this is an image of God that I'm dealing with and um Therefore, needs to, be, needs to be listened to, for one yeah, thing. Right. If you're going to learn anything about God yeah. through them, you've got to give them a bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing I think about the idea of the image of God is that there's another angle on the question is, is what is there that's different about human beings from the rest of the animate creation? Mm. Um, which obviously is a question raised by evolutionary science. You know, what is there anything substantially different, you know, qualitatively different between us and and our evolutionary forebears? Or you know, if, if you believe in evolution as the means by which um, we came into being, or at least the, the means by which we, you know, we came to what we are now. So, you know, what is the qualitative difference between us and dolphins or apes or chimpanzees or, or whatever? And, of course, you know, there's um, a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that, well, we're different in degree, but not in sort of substance. And that, that, that whole question comes into it, I think. Um, and I suppose my... my one of, the, one of the dangers, I suppose, of the image of God language in the past has sometimes been that we kind of cut ourselves off from the rest of creation, as if we are mm-hmm. absolutely unique and special and better than everything, everything else, and therefore we have a right to somehow kind of control it and, and, and dominate it. Um, Whereas actually one of the helpful things, I think, about the idea that we are, um, we have a kind of kinship with the rest of creation and the animate creation is that you know, we, we kind of belong together. But the image of God language is saying there is something different about us than, than the rest of creation. And I think maybe that may be something to do with potential. That the image of God is about the potential that we have, that, that human beings have, if you like, that, that perhaps no other part of the animate creation has, which is to, to, to grow into that image of God. So that in some ways it's not so much about something we possess, but it's something about something which we have the potential to grow into. Um, it also looks in the Genesis story as so though it's something to do with the particular thing that God shares with us. Mm. Mm. which is um, his love and care for what he's made. Mm. Mm. Um, he makes people 
and and asks them to name the creatures. Yep. Yep. Um, and and I think that that's something that you actually do see in the environmental damage that we're suffering now, that human beings actually have um, the capability to change um, the world in a way that most animal, king, animal mm. communities don't. Um, uh, and that is part of our shared imaging with God that we're actually severely misusing sure. a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. I, I gather in um, the ancient Near East, um, rulers used to, when they conquered a city... That isn't the city from which they came, from which they were ruling their little empire. They would put up an image of themselves uh, as a, you know, a way of saying, you know, th- th- this is a sign of I've stamped my authority on this place. And there's a sense in which uh, we being the image of God is a way of saying, well, we are the way through means by which God is ruling creation. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not a that's got to reflect the kind of rule that God has of us, which is not an exploitative one uh, or a dominating one, but a liberating and a freeing and enabling to be ourselves kind of rule. And that's, what, that's why I think this, this idea of it, the image of God being of like a calling rather than a, a fact, if yeah. you like, is quite important because it is possible for us to dominate. You know, we can mm. do that. We mm. can actually rule in a way which is not like, like God. But yet we stand under this calling to grow into his likeness and to, um, to share his character and to rule over the world in the way that, that, that he would in his name. And therefore, and it kind of helps us to understand why, you know, for, you know there, there are people who look more like God and people who, who look less like, like him, and that's how our calling is to grow into that, and to grow into it through Christ-likeness. Was it, was it, was it, was it Athanasius who uh, made the distinction between humanity, all of humanity in the image of God, but growing towards the likeness? Mm. of God I think that was the mm. distinction mm. certainly the early church generally made I think it was Athanasius yeah. uh, I, having, having agreed um, s- sickeningly with Jane earlier on I'm going to stop no I'm not going to stop no but I'm going to disagree with, with um, Graham a little okay, bit I, I will allow that <laughs> you're very kind um, because I, I think it's important not to let go of the factsness of the image of God because otherwise people will say well I've got to grow into value mm. and no sure. we don't yep. grow into value we, yep. we grow because we are valued mm. yeah. uh, and because that is an unshakable yep. unassailable fact um, so I think it's both fact and calling yep. become more what you are yeah. uh, but, but nevertheless we yeah. are who we are right. as people made in the image of yeah. God I mean, I'm saying you, know, you, you can't lose that potential that, 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 is, that is there within us that, that ability to grow into the, the image of God and that being made in the image of God um, but I said by saying it's not fact it's not a kind of closed thing it's not something that you know okay you're stamped you've got the image of God and that's it mm. well you see I think I think I agree with you Mike I think <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is one of the uh, very controversial here but I mean I think it's one of the, the problems of the abortion debate is that if you go too far down the kind of potential route then Human beings have to earn their value by being so old or yeah. having so many cells or whatever. I think there's a, there's a sense in which it just is. You don't have to earn it by... Be- I would love to think that people who are bigger are more valuable than people who are smaller. And increasingly, I'd like to think that people who are older are more valuable than people who are younger. But I don't think... It's, I think it's just given. And that's why I, I myself would... would be against the practices of abortion because yeah, I think it, sure. it wrongly suggests that uh, you have to earn it. Mm. Uh, you you have to qualify for humanity. But you'd recognise though that would you that that image is somehow broken or shattered. Oh yes. Kind of oh. Marred. Oh yes. And perhaps that's where the language of likeness mm. 
growing into the yeah. likeness of God yeah. perhaps comes is more helpful that we yes. are in the image of God and yet yeah. it is and broken and fallen. Absolutely. Um, but we are called yeah. into and we have the potential to be like God. Yeah. And I think we're probably emphasizing two different sides mm. of, a, of, of a common thing. I absolutely agree with you that, that this is something which is given to us and that that's where our value comes from and our value doesn't grow any greater the more we grow in, mm. into the likeness of God. Um, our value is exactly the same whether we are kind of you know, we've, we've grown a long way into the image of God and reflect more more perfectly the image of Christ than, than if we don't. Um, but I guess I, I still want to say that there's still this element of calling about oh, it. Yes. That um, although the image of God is something which I can uh, I can rest in and, and find my value in, um, it's not done and dusted in the sense that it's, it's something which is um, mm. I just sit back and and um, kind of assume uh, my calling is to grow into it and to, to reflect more and more of the nature of God as I as I go through my life. And, and I suppose the the particular thing I think I keep coming back to is that it's this thing of I think what you mentioned early on, Mike, was 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 you know what is what is the kind of unique excellence of a human being? What is it that you know I feel like the excellence of a horse is to be able to run and run fast and you know the um, the excellence of a tree is to produce fruit and to, to be sort of colourful and all that kind of thing. What is the excellence of a human being? And I, I think it it must lie in this thing that we have this capability of of love, hmm. which is what is at the heart of, of God. And that's a lot a large hmm. part of what it means to be made in the image of God. In a way that, that a horse and a and a, and a, and a tree can't, um, we can. But the excellence of any created being is that we give God joy. Hmm. And yeah. so in that sense, we don't need a utilitarian reason sure. for yeah. working yeah, out what we're for. Gives God joy a, a horse running, is just running. glorious, isn't it? But I guess we give glory to God by... And that's actually quite a, a radical hmm. belief because it actually says that, you know, I, I always think of people who have Down syndrome who it's easy to say are less able in all sorts of areas of their humanity um, than, than those who don't, but actually in their capacity for love, they, and their capacity they f- to give God pleasure and g- give yeah. God pleasure mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. It is, yeah. if anything, probably yeah. higher than exactly. those of us who yeah. rush around trying to achieve things and don't have time for our relationships and our mm-hmm. you know, and our and our love. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it helps to challenge the usual ways in which we mm-hmm. make assessments and evaluations of, of one another. It seems to me. Uh, so I guess, Terry, do you want no. something else? Uh, well, uh, are we moving on to another question? Um, not yet, no. Keep going. Keep going. Drag out on this one. Uh, we just really just to sum up the, uh, an answer to um, the final bit of Fee's question, which is how is that helpful to someone who has a low self-image? And I suppose this, maybe this, um, this balance we've been trying to sort of tease out between the kind of givenness of, of the image of God and it, it being a calling that we're to grow, grow into, both sides of those actually do say something to those who, who are of a low self-image. On the one hand, those who have a low self-image, it says, "Well, you know, you are uh, you are made in the image of God. You are stamped with His His likeness. You, you know, this, that's where your value comes from. It doesn't come from your looks or your lack of them or your brain or, or intelligence or achievement. It's it's nothing to do with that. It's the fact that you are made and loved by by God and made in His image. Um, but at the same time, it also says that you know, whoever you are, you have the potential to grow into that image more and more." And however much um, you may think, oh, well, I'm useless, I can't do anything at all. Um, yes, that potential is there. And um, so I, I, I sense that both both sides of that mm. have something to say to, to, um, 
to people in that place, really. But to grow because you're already loved, rather than because you have mm. to deserve or achieve something, sure. I yeah. think is a very different yeah. approach. And far healthier. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But the thing that always bugs me is always all these books on you know how to deal with your low self-esteem. Mm. And there's nothing on how to deal with your high self-esteem. There's nothing nothing there. We'll take care of that for you, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate that. That's what God pulls (laughs) Gang up on Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Mike ganging up on us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know it's slightly out of place, but the question that we touched on about... um, the evolutionary thing and, and us yeah. with animals and yeah. is it just a matter of degree yeah. the difference between us and, and animals of course you can have something that is a matter of degree but nevertheless qualifies as something decisively different mm. yeah. uh, the, the picture that Donald Mackay always used to use is that of a, a gas tap that if you're turning a gas tap on very very slowly um, to start with there's not enough gas in the air for it to ignite um, yeah. Then you turn it up a bit more, still not enough gas in the air. Turn it a bit more, still not enough, still not enough, still not enough. And at a certain point, there's enough gas in the air for the thing to ignite. So you can have a completely smooth progression, yeah. and yet something decisively different happening. Mm-hmm. Now, evolution isn't uh, a steady, smooth progression. Mm-hmm. But even if it were, that wouldn't mean yeah. that you can have something different, a point at yeah. which God can say, actually... There's enough relational capacity and enough moral sense. There's enough creativity and capacity here for me to relate to these beings in in a new way. That makes this species qualitatively different from the others. That's right. Even Mm. though there's a kind of sense of growth out of out of the others. I think think that's exactly right. I think that seems to make a lot lot of sense of both these these vital sort of biblical um, perspectives on on human value and 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 God's image with some of what we know from from um, Quite a scientific exploration and study. Indeed. Thank you. Well, I think we've come reached the end of our time for today. Um, thank you, Rod, again for being with us. Mm. Thank you. It's, um, been it's probably your last time, God, but at least last for, for a while. Yes. <laughs> until, you, until you come back as a visiting professor. That's of course. Right, exactly, yeah. One day. One day. Good. So it's very good for you to have been with us. Well, thank you for letting me take part. Good. Thank you, Jane. My pleasure. And Michael. And mine too. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.